Would you pray with me? Gracious God, as we come to consider your words, would you speak to us? Would you teach us and instruct us that we might take this word into our hearts and that it might there bear fruit? In the name of your Son, amen. Surely the Lord is coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I was supposed to say that earlier, so I wanted to say it now. Um, yeah. Well, we're here at the edge of Advent and Christmas, Christmas Eve. I want to talk about the Incarnation. I want to talk about David. The Incarnation is the pivotal point in human history. Some of you might not know this word, Incarnation. It means taking on flesh. The moment when the Son of God comes among us. And this seam that we are standing on between the expectant season of Advent and the fulfillment of Christmas offers us a wide-angle lens on the whole Gospel, the whole truth that God speaks to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. And at this moment, we're called to consider what it means that the Son of God took on flesh and made His dwelling among us. You see, in the beginning, God built a house for His children. The world was formless and void, Genesis tells us, uninhabitable and uninhabited. And God shines a light into it. He turns on the lights. He makes a firm ground. And He makes a ceiling. He orders this world and He adorns it with beauty. He ensures that it is well stocked with provisions and opportunity for our first parents to discover themselves in meaningful work. And He Himself is present with them, but not in such a way as to overwhelm them. God makes a house for Adam and for Eve. And this is a reflection of who He is as a father, a builder, and of what He desires for us. The loss of this dwelling through our own fault leaves humanity homeless and wandering on an extended pilgrimage to a future that we can barely glimpse. And mercifully, God remains present, revealing Himself to His now blinded children through prophets and sages, and giving us glimpses of His intentions to not leave us in our predicament. But He remains in history mysterious, and His ways are hard to understand. King David, in the Bible, is one of the figures in this story of wandering. And more space is given to considering the person of David the personality of David than any other figure in the Old Testament. The books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, it's a four-volume story of the rise of David and his house and the demise of David and his house. The rise and fall of the Davidic empire, you might say. The prophets of Israel reflect at length on the meaning of this. In the Psalms, like the one we prayed today, recount God's faithfulness to David specifically. And it is within the lens of the framework of the promises made to David that Israel prays for restoration from exile. And all of this means that David's kingdom is central to the biblical story. It's the essential prelude to the announcement of David's greater son who comes to us today. And yet the idea of a human kingdom, the idea of David's kingdom, is something that the Bible is deeply ambivalent about. 
The idea that there is a monarchy, that there would be a human king who represents God or who has the power that a king has over people is something that the Bible teaches us actually to be suspicious about. The very first hint that this would happen in Israel comes in 1 Samuel 8. There has not been a king before. And the people of Israel come to the prophet Samuel and say, we would like a king. And God, through the prophet, says, you don't know what you're asking for. This is not a good plan for you. I am your king. Trust me here. And they say, like we often do, or like our children often do, and the children that we remain often do to God, yes, 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 we know, we know, we know. What you're saying, God, you are the king, but we would really like a human king. We have good ideas. That king could be really strong and protect us from our enemies. And God, like a parent who realizes that a child has to learn through their own mistakes, says, okay, I offer to you taxes. I offer to you now the amassing of power. Your sons will now be conscripted into the military. I offer you a person who can concentrate power in such a way that when the army is off fighting, he can take advantage of his neighbor's wife and then commit murder to cover it up. This is part of the story of David and his kingdom. In some ways, it's part of the story of Christendom as well, the alliance of earthly kingdoms with the kingdom of God. There are positives to this, though. A king does ensure order. A king, who's an individual, can embody the ideals and the values of his people. There's something about it that, you know, we sometimes want some, to have a leader that we can look to and say, that person, I'm following that person. We're, God save us. We're moving into an election year. Don't drink the water. But it is powerful. We want somebody who we can say, that is my person. 100% I'm behind them. They can provide peace and security. They can build for us a house that will be safe for us to dwell in. We will be at rest. We will have peace. We will have what we need. We'll be happy. If only we can have this person. Well, as it turns out, David's a pretty good king on balance. And he gets to a place where he has actually had a fair amount of victory over his neighbors. There is a measure of peace in Israel, although it's a very tenuous peace. David doesn't realize it, but he is at the height of Israel's peace and security. David and then his, king, his son Solomon, who actually is the king who has the most peace, and then everything goes downhill from that. Now, David doesn't know that this is going to happen. He doesn't see everything that we can see from the biblical narrative. He just sees himself there. But he has what he needs. And when he's sitting in his house of cedar, I guess it's not a stone house. It's not as, like, you know, Big Bad Wolf could have blown this one down. But he's in his house of cedar, and he has rest, it says, from his surrounding enemies. And the king speaks to his friend Nathan the prophet and says this, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. This is the ark that God had commanded Moses to make that would hold the tablets of the tabernacle, that would be the place that reminded Israel that the unseen God brought them out of Egypt and that he had spoken to them there and that he would be in their presence. And this ark had not made its way all the way to Jerusalem where David is. It is off a little ways somewhere else. And David is anxious about this. David wants the presence of God in with himself to bless him, of course, but also to bless the people. And so David has this idea, I will build a temple 
for the Lord, the way that the other nations around have temples. I'm a king like the other nations have kings. We'll have a temple like the other nations have temples. And I think we have to say that this is a good desire. David wants to honor God, and he wants to strengthen Israel's connection with God. In 2 Chronicles, Solomon is speaking to his advisors about his deceased father, and he says that God spoke to my father David and said, you did well. It was good that it was in your heart to do this. I didn't allow you to do it because, in fact, you killed so many people that your hands were covered in blood that it would not be appropriate for you to build a house for me, but you wanted a good thing. The temple is the place where God's dwelling with his people is made visible in the Old Testament. The eminence of God, this thing that we celebrate in the incarnation, God's coming among us, is prefigured and made real in the temple. And so David says, I want to build a house for God. And I think this is very interesting, that God says, I have a better idea. And the first thing he does, I don't know if you listened when Tony was reading, uh, is he, I think, gently chides David about David's sense of, his, of what he might do for God. Go, this is verses 5 to 7, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought my people of Israel up from the land of Egypt. He has been homeless, and he is willing to remain homeless. I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And then he goes on. In all the places where I have moved with my people Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built for me a house of cedar? God sort of chuckles at David's thought that perhaps God needs something from him. No, he says, I'm driving. You have an idea about what you need, David, but I am the one who is driving what is happened in it, happening in your life and in Israel. Again in verse 8, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord who has armies at his disposal, though he wanders from place to place with his ark. I took you from the field, from following after the sheep, and I made you prince of my people. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you. And then he begins to make promises. I will make your name great. David, the story about what is happening with you does not depend upon you and your good ideas. It depends on the fact that I have intervened to do something with you and for you, and my intentions are what really matter. God sits David down and reminds him who is going to be gracious to whom. And in God's gratuitous kindness to David, the answer has the effect of opposing, think, think with me for a minute, all of our human efforts to God's desire to first bless us and be with us. Whose will is ultimately decisive in this moment? It is the Lord's. And this is the kernel of the great Reformation doctrine of justification, that it is not my efforts or my goodness that gets me to God, but God's gracious condescension, the fact that he already pre-before, whenever I decided to do anything, had a plan to do something for me and for you and for us. God goes on in verse 11. 
And I think this is the beautiful rhetorical part of this passage. David says, I would like to build a house for the Lord. And God says, David, I'm going to build you a house. I am going to build your house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And it goes on. There is a return to a pre-monarchical idea of God as the supreme leader who's going to build. And David's son Solomon, who does in fact build a giant temple that is quite beautiful before it's destroyed, is a partial fulfillment of this. There is, for like a generation, peace and prosperity in a beautiful kingdom that is quite expansive. It comes to an end, but God is faithful to David. But the promises don't terminate with Solomon. God is not finally speaking about Solomon. Three times in the passage, he says that this is a kingdom that is going to endure forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Can you imagine what it would have been like to live with this hope about three generations later? The kingdom that was united under David and Solomon has broken apart and is now in pieces, propelled, especially in the north, to to increasing idolatry, but also in the south, the abandoning of Israel's God, the God God who delivered them from Egypt. Can you imagine what it's like to hold on to hopes like this, that 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 David's sons would have an eternal, forever kingdom with peace and prosperity where there was no trouble with enemies It would have felt foolish. It would have felt lost. And many would give up hope. As in fact, I am quite sure many did and have. A people who held onto this story would have to be oriented beyond the momentary aspirations to land and security toward a future that only God is big enough to hold. A future that in the strangest way, Christians say, has met its climax in Jesus Christ. In a city, not even in Jerusalem, a city that is smaller in the south, Bethlehem, in a little place where animals are, where a poor girl gives birth to a son and has said this about him, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. This is not accidental. They're going to give to God is going to give to Jesus this throne of David, this promise of an eternal kingdom. And here again, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The repetition of this permanence. God's power takes root then in human weakness, declaring the triumph of God right there. And by this non-synergy of divine and human modes of power, the utter transcendence of God's power is demonstrated and the importance of our human capabilities is made utterly trivial. This becomes a great parable for our reliance upon God's supreme benevolence. The incarnation then, the coming of the Lord, unites us to God in a way that the Israel at the time of David could not experience. And there are three brief, very brief aspects to this unity that is created for us. Number one, there is a permanent connection. 
We've heard this forever. There's not a way to hold on easily to the Davidic promise without a son of God who is raised from the dead, who ascends and is forever the king. There is a permanent connection to God. And there is, I think, also a non-anxious connection to God. The presence of Jesus with his people is promised and secured in a way by the Spirit that does not depend upon cultural power. It is not necessary for us to establish a political realm where we can see a thing happening. Your person doesn't have to be elected. You don't have to win the war. Jesus is David's son, but as Jesus will say later on in the gospel, he is also more than that. He is the Lord. He is David's Lord. Despite its many failures, many failures, the church of Jesus Christ has endured longer than any political entity. In its many broken pieces, this promise of God has been made good, though it takes the eyes of faith to see it. Thirdly, there is an intimate connection that we have with God that David did not know, despite his closeness with him. Listen to this. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. These words spoken to Mary. How close does Jesus become to the Virgin Mary? He is within her. Doesn't this sound like the language that we hear often throughout Paul's writings? Christ is in you. The hope of glory. Mary becomes in this moment of, of her, of the incarnation, of her receiving the Lord within her, she becomes the paradigm for discipleship. God has come to take up residence within her, and she cooperates with God. She doesn't understand how this is going to happen. You heard the passage. How is this going to be? She doesn't know. But she accepts the message that God has for her. May it be to me according to your word. This is the posture of faith and hope. Hoping against hope that this promise of David's kingdom could somehow be made real right now in the midst of a politically dominated place. May it be to me according to your word. This pregnant hope is ours. I don't think I have shared this poem with you before that uh, I'm often reminded of this time of year. It's by the mystical Scottish poet and uh, pastor and writer of fiction, George MacDonald. I'll close with it for you. It's called That Holy Thing. They were all looking for a king, he says, to slay their foes and lift them high. Thou camest a little baby thing that made a woman cry. O son of man, to, to write my lot, naught but thy presence can avail. But on the road thy wheels are not, nor on the sea thy sail. My how and when thou wilt not heed, but come down thine own secret stair, that thou mayest answer all my need. Yea, every bygone prayer. Amen.